Okay. Hi, everyone. It is Scott Shapiro, Jurisprudence Course Podcast, Episode 11. Um, that was the Empire Strikes Back theme song. Um, uh, and this episode is Law's Empire Strikes Back. And what we're going to do is talk about Ronald Dworkin's positive, uh, first his critique of. Uh, of uh, legal positivism and then his own positive proposal. I happen to think it's extremely interesting and important and spend at least two episodes on it. Um, and so the way I, I'm going to arrange this episode is, again, three parts. First part, I'm going to recap where we are. And kind of rehearse the dialectic up until now. And then in the second part, I'm going to present uh, Dworkin's critique of theoretical disagreements, which I think is very powerful. And then finally, in part three, I will introduce the idea of constructive interpretation and what Dworkin's positive proposal is. And then in episode 12, next week, we'll talk about um, kind of in depth, how he uh, argues for his specific uh, doctrine of law as integrity. Okay, so let's start by recapping where we are. In some sense, I kind of screwed up the ordering. I've talked about this in previous episodes. I did the hard working debate a bit earlier than I should have, but anyway. Um, uh, you can you can get a refund um, through customer service, um, but let me just go. Let me present it in the order in which it should have been presented. So we started um, by talking about how there was this view that people had that positivism implied formalism, um, because formalists believe that. Judges should never use moral reasoning, look to policy in decide, when deciding cases. And it seemed as if positivists were committed to this amorality of adjudication because they believed that law depends on social facts alone. And so it would seem as though a positivist would say that judge should never rely on moral reasoning when decide the cases because the law always depends ultimately on social facts alone. Well, what Hart argued was that positivism actually implies anti-formalism, not formalism, but actually anti-formalism because since the law depends on social facts alone, social facts can't ever pick out absolutely comprehensive standards of guidance. I told, called this the limits of the social. That is, the social acts of picking out 
either exemplars, precedent, or using texts which have general terms will always have associated with them areas of indeterminacy. And so therefore, it would turn out that the law is necessarily indeterminate to some extent. And therefore, when judges are deciding cases, they're inevitably, inevitably going to have to rely on moral reasoning to decide those cases. So therefore, actually, positivism implies anti-formalism, not formalism. Um, which is good if you think that formalism is a, is a bad doctrine. Um, Dworkin comes along in the 1960s and says, wait a second, if you actually look at the way judges decide cases, you will see that judges never act as though the law is indeterminate. They never say, hey, we're now in the open texture uh, and uh, uh, I have strong discretion, as, as Dworkin called it, strong discretion to decide um, the case as I see fit. Um, and I'm going to make new law. No, they always act like there is law to find. And they do this by looking to principles which are valid according to Dworkin because they are morally appropriate and they apply those principles to decide cases which arise before them. So it's not as though the law is indeterminate and judges come along and decide cases by making new law, no, they always act like there's law defined. So therefore, formalism, in fact, is true. And since positivism implies anti-formalism, and formalism is true, therefore, positivism must be false. This is, um, there's, a, there's an old line that uh, philosophers use, they say that one person's modus ponens is another person's modus tollens. And the, 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 the idea is modus ponens is, if you got P and P therefore Q, you can conclude Q. And modus tollens is, if you have not Q and P therefore Q, you can infer not P. Okay? And those are logically equivalent. Um, so uh, here, what Hart wanted to say was um, positivism, positivism implies anti-formalism, he's a positivist, so therefore anti-formalism must be true. Whereas Dworkin takes his modus ponens and turns it into a modus tollens. He says, it's true that positivism implies anti-formalism, but since formalism is true, that is not Q, therefore not P, therefore positivism has to be false. Okay? Now, we saw two responses to this. This was the exclusive and inclusive legal positivism uh, debate. Uh, both of them have responses to Dworkin's view. When Dworkin says, look, judges are looking to morality to decide cases, the inclusive legal positivist says, well, that's, that's fine. You can look to morality to decide cases, but that doesn't mean that law is not ultimately dependent on social facts. It's that social facts say that morality is relevant. 
that is the rule of recognition tells judges that when the pedigreed standards run out, when the socially designated standards run out, they are to look to morality. And so therefore, moral principles become part of the law by virtue of their relationship to the rule of recognition. So all Dworkin has showed is that in Anglo-American legal systems, the rule of recognition contains non-pedigreed standards of legal validity. The exclusive legal positive says, no, 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 that, 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 that doesn't follow. The, all Dworkin has showed is that when the pedigreed standards run out, judges are under a legal obligation to look to morality, to look outside the law, but the fact that judges are required to look outside the law doesn't make the standards that are outside the law now legal standards. No, they're just under a legal obligation to apply extra legal standards. So that doesn't mean that those extra legal standards are now law. It just means that judges are under a legal obligation to apply things outside the law. So that's exclusive legal positivism because it says that moral criteria of legal validity are not acceptable. And I'll, to, I'll talk later in, in, in later episodes why I think exclusive legal positivism is the right view to take. But the, the point is, is that either, whether you take the exclusive or the inclusive legal positivist position, um, the positivist has a pretty good response to, um, to Twerkin's critique uh, in what I call Act One of the hart Twerkin debate. You can be either exclusive or an inclusive inclusive legal positivists, you can explain why judges look to moral principles when deciding uh, cases. And uh, completely consistent with the idea that positivism is the view that law, legal facts ultimately depend on social facts alone. Okay? That's the way it goes. Dworkin, in in an article called Model Rules 2, um, but mainly in chapter one of Law's Empire, shows why actually the inclusive or exclusive legal positivist response um, won't really work uh, for a new critique which he offers, uh, which is the problem of theoretical disagreements. And I think that's this, the problem of theoretical disagreements, which uh, is the most powerful objection to positivism, and I think the most powerful objection that Dworkin has, and I think it's the objection that positivists have really not responded to. I mean, they've responded to the previous critique in Model Rules 1, but the problem with theoretical disagreements is extremely powerful and um, been largely ignored um, uh, by positivists. And so what I'm going to do in part two is I am going to present that argument as it is uh, set out in chapter one of Law's Empire and then um, discuss why it's such a problem for positivism. I will be back in a bit. Something inside you is feeling like I do We said all there is to say
Okay, part two. That was Tom Petty breakdown. And question is, will positivism break down because of the problem of theoretical disagreements? I think I may have wanted to be a DJ because um, maybe I didn't want to be a legal positivist. Maybe I wanted to be a DJ because um, I really enjoy picking songs and then giving smoky intro and outros. Um, anyway, let's, let's, uh, <laughs> I've made my choices in life and I ended up in analytical jurisprudence. Um, so let's just go with that. Okay. So Dworkin begins by introducing the distinction between propositions of law and grounds of law. A proposition of law is a statement about the law in a particular jurisdiction. It's what we would say uh, a statement of a legal fact. So it's a proposition of law that in California you can't drive more than 65 miles per hour on the freeway. Okay, so that's propositions of law. They can be true or false. Propositions of law are true or false, but true or false by virtue of the grounds of law. Grounds of law are facts, the obtaining of which renders a proposition of law true. So you could say that propositions of law in California are true if the, legis the California legislature approves a bill which expresses that proposition by requisite majority and signed by the governor or not signed by the governor, but by a supermajority, something like that. But those are the grounds of law. Okay, they're facts. When they obtain, they make propositions of law true, and when they don't obtain, they render propositions of law false. Okay. We, um, Dworkin doesn't express it in this way, but if we were talking in Hardian language, we would say the, the grounds of law are the criteria of legal validity. They are those tests that a rule has to pass in order for it to be considered valid or invalid. Okay, so that would be the, the, the relationship, the grounds of law to the rules of recognition. Those grounds of law are part of the criteria, criteria of legal validity. Okay, so Dworkin says that, you know, people can disagree about whether propositions of law are true or false, and he distinguishes between two kinds of disagreements you could have about the grounds of law. The first he calls empirical disagreements. An empirical disagreement is a disagreement about whether the grounds of law are satisfied in a given case. So we can ask, did Congress really enact the bill or not? So like it happens lots of times that you, know, you read in the newspaper about uh, various bills that are being debated and you kind of can't remember whether the bill passed or didn't pass. And you say to your friend, oh, no, no, but that, that, that passed. And the person says, no, it didn't pass. And so you're just having a, uh, an empirical disagreement about whether the grounds of law, or you could say it passed, but the president vetoed it or something like that. So you could have like just disagreements about whether the grounds of law have obtained in a particular case. That's what Jordan calls an empirical disagreement. A theoretical disagreement is disagreement about what the grounds of law are in a particular case. So you could say, um, well, no, it's not, it's not law in California um, that 
you um, that you can't drive more than sixty five miles per hour because the legislature never agreed to that. And somebody can say, wait a second, no, 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 no. But the legislature doesn't have to agree to those things. That's part of the state motor vehicle um, uh, agency. And you're like, really? Is it the, the agency decides on that? And the, and, and you frankly say, yeah, yeah, no, the agency say, oh, okay. So, so you can, you can disagree about whether the grounds of law have obtained in a particular case, that would be the empirical disagreement. But then you can have like a theoretical disagreement. You can say like, well, wait, what are the grounds of law in a particular legal system? Who, what must be the case in order for a law to be um, authoritative or not? Okay, and that would be a theoretical disagreement. What Dworkin is going to argue is that according to positivism, all disagreements are necessarily empirical disagreements. All disagreements about the grounds of law, I'm sorry, all disagreements about propositions of law are really empirical disagreements about whether the grounds of law have obtained in a particular case. They're never theoretical disagreements. They're never disagreements about whether a fact is a ground of law in a particular legal system. And the reason why that's going to be important is because he's going to say that there are many, many instances. In fact, it's very common for legal actors have disagreements about whether the grounds of law, whether facts are grounds of law. That is, it's very common for legal actors to have to have to have theoretical disagreements. And if positivism can't explain the very possibility of theoretical disagreements, and they are incredibly common, then this is a big strike against positivism. So that's what I want to um, go through right now. This is called the problem of theoretical disagreements. It seems as if theoretical disagreements are common in the law, and yet positivism can't accept their very possibility. How, 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 how does this work? The first thing I, I, I want to go through is that in Chapter 1 of Law's Empire, Dworkin ascribes to positivism what he calls the plain fact view. The plain, he says, the positivists are plain, are, are, accept plain, the plain fact view of the law. So I want to say what the plain fact view is, and then to show you that actually what he says positivism is committed to is just false. But number three, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is, a, I have to say, you know, Dworkin is, it was brilliant. I mean, just genius and unbelievably talented, incredibly important, but he almost always misrepresented his, his opponents, which was a real mistake, which is not only a bad thing to do to misrepresent your opponents, but it's also a, um, it's particularly bad thing to do when you don't even need to do it, when your critique even applies if you represented them correctly. So um, what is the plain fact view? Well, the plain fact view has two parts to it. The first part is that the grounds of law are the facts which legal officials agree are the grounds of law. That is, the grounds of law are those facts which people accept as the grounds of law. Put another way, the, ground, uh, the grounds of law, according to the plain fact view, are those facts that everyone agrees renders 
propositions of law in that jurisdiction true. Okay, so that's the first part, the first thesis of the plain fact view. Namely, grounds of law are established by consensus. And the second part of the plain fact view is that the grounds of law are matters of plain fact. That is, they are matters of historical fact. This is what, in earlier discussions, we would have called pedigreed uh, facts. That is, the the facts related to the institutional source or pedigree of a given rule. So you, we, we have two parts to the plain fact view. One is that the grounds of law are established by consensus, and the second is that the, the uh, grounds of law must refer to matters of plain historical fact, matters of pedigree. Now, if you if you if you put it that way, it seems as though um, Dworkin is describing all positivism as exclusive legal positivism, because exclusive legal positivists believe that the criteria of legal validity must always refer to the pedigreed uh, sources of law. He's denying that inclusive legal positivism is a form of positivism. Now, I think I've mentioned this before, but virtually everyone is an inclusive legal positivist. Exclusive legal positivism is pretty much the minority. I'm an exclusive legal positivist, just as exclusive legal positivist. A couple others are, but mainly inclusive legal positivism has been the dominant view. I don't know why Dworkin had to... Um, to ascribe exclusive legal positivism to positivism when, in fact, it's not indeed the case. But and and you'll and we'll see in a second. You don't even need to be an exclusive legal positivist for this argument to apply. Okay. So the first thing is he uh, he 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 wants to argue that positivism cannot explain for the possibility of theoretical disagreements, and he also says that positivism is exclusive legal positivism. Hey, I don't know why. Again, I don't know why he says a second, but just we, we can ignore it for the moment. Okay. What what Dworkin wants to say is that positivism can't explain the possibility of theoretical disagreements. And theoretical disagreements are very common. So he gives he gives numerous examples in chapter one of theoretical disagreements. Let me give you one. Because uh, it's a cool case, and some of you might know it. it if you don't, it's um, it's like I said, it's a cool case called TVA versus Hill, Tennessee Valley Authority versus Hill. So what happened was the Tennessee Valley Authority they build this dam, and dam it's almost done. They spend like a hundred million dollars building the dam, and as they're almost finished with the dam. The Congress passes the, uh, the Endangered Species Act, and uh, environmentalists uh, say, uh, "Say, hey, look, you know, this dam is going to is going to destroy the habitat of the snail darter." Now, the snail darter is a three-inch fish. Nobody cares about the snail darter. The snail. The only thing that's I mean, I think snails care about the snail darter. I think the snail darter um, darts in and out of snails. Um, it's not an important fish. 
I know some of you listeners probably are going to write to me and say, hey, I wrote my thesis on the snail daughter. The snail daughter is the best fish in the world. I can't believe you said this, you monster. Anyway, snail daughter is not terribly important. Anyway, the environmentalists think, okay, this is going to destroy the habitat of the snail daughter, the Endangered Species Act, um, uh, gives us a legal right to stop the dam from finishing. And so what the court has to decide is, what do you do in a case where you spent basically $100 million building this dam, it's almost done, you pass legislation right at the end, it's going to it's gonna affect this, this fish nobody cares about, what do you do? The court's divided. The majority, uh, according to Chief Justice, uh, written by Chief Justice Berger, writes that got to shut down the dam, got to shut down the dam because the Endangered Species Act, the text is pretty clear that um, if a species designated by the Secretary of the Interior is, go- is in danger of if their habitat's in danger of being destroyed by this federal project, you got to stop. Whereas um, the dissent says, uh, written by Justice Powell, says, are you out of your mind? And they're spending hundreds, uh, you know, millions, millions of dollars for this is just absurd. Um, no way should you just follow the, 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 plain meaning of the text when it has an absolutely absurd result. So what Dworkin points out is that this is really a theoretical disagreement. It's a disagreement about what the grounds of law are in the federal system. Chief Justice Berger says that the plain text of a statute is a ground of law, even when it gives an absurd result except he says if congress if there if congress intended for you not to follow it in that case whereas powell says no you do not that is not a ground of law in the federal system if the plain meaning of a text gives you a result which is absurd you don't follow it unless congress wanted you to follow the absurd result Okay, so here there's a disagreement about what the grounds of law are in the the federal system. Powell says basically follow the plain text, and Powell says no, don't follow the plain text. The disagreement is whether the plain text, the meaning of the plain text, is a ground of law in the federal system, Um, at least in cases where you get absurd policy consequences. Um, what Dworkin points out is that this is disagreement about what the grounds of law are. That is, they're not disagreeing about what Congress decided or what they intended. They're disagreeing about how, what, the, what facts you look to in order to determine what propositions of law are true or false in the federal system. I mean, that's what the disagreement is about. Now, positivists can't explain this because for them... And here's the here's the here's the kicker. For them, the grounds of law are determined by consensus, by agreement. But if there's disagreement about what the grounds of law are, then by the terms of the debate, 
there's no agreement. If the positivist says F is a ground of law, if and only if there is agreement, well, let me just forget if and only if, just say, if the positivist says F is a ground of law only if there's agreement, but there's disagreement, that shows that there is no agreement about F, and that means that F can't be the ground of law. That is, theoretical disagreements are self-defeating for the positivist. If somebody says F is a ground of law, and other people say, no, F isn't a ground of law, then positivism would say that the one who says that F isn't a ground of law, they have to be right, because by them disagreeing about whether F is a ground of law, that shows that there is no agreement about the grounds of law, and therefore F can't be a ground of law. So it seems as though actually disagreeing about grounds of law for positivists can't be possible. It leads to incoherence. If you say the grounds of law are things that we agree up, uh, are the grounds of law, but now we're disagreeing about what the grounds of law are, that's incoherent. You can't accept both propositions. Let me see. Let me, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop here, and um, I will, I'll do a, a quick recap, and then we'll see how Dworkin believes we should, uh, uh, what what the way forward is. Okay. Okay, part three. That was Rolling Stone, Beast of Burden. We were just talking about Dworkin and the problem of theoretical disagreements. The basic view is that positivists can't countenance the possibility of theoretical disagreements, that is, disagreements about the grounds of law, because they think that grounds of law are determined by consensus. And disagreements imply the absence of consensus. So therefore, any disagreements about propositions of law must always be empirical disagreements about where the grounds of law have obtained, not what the grounds of law are. Now notice there's no way out of this by, by either being an exclusive or an inclusive legal positivist, because notice that both inclusive and exclusive legal positivists believe that the grounds of law, I mean, what's common ground between them is that the grounds of law are determined by consensus. The only disagreement between them um, involves what kinds of things there could be consensus about in order to count as grounds of law. The exclusive legal positivists, well, the inclusive legal positivists, they're inclusive. They think if there's consensus about certain facts, as being grounds of law, then they're grounds of law, regardless of what they are. They can be moral facts. Those are still grounds of law. And the exclusive legal positivist says, no, no, even if there's consensus about moral facts, that's not part of the rule of recognition. That does not make it a ground of law. But notice again that the, the, the what's common between them is that agreement determines what the grounds of law are in a particular legal system. And so therefore, they can't countenance the very idea of disagreement. Now you could, you 
you, you can imagine two other ways that um, a positivist might try to get out of this problem. One is they can say that, okay, the fact that theoretical disagreements um, are incoherent under the positivist perspective doesn't mean that positivism is wrong. It just means that legal actors are incoherent, okay, that they're confused. I mean, they think that legal uh, that theoretical disagreements are possible, and they're just wrong about that. That is, they're incoherent to think that, and the positivism could just say that sometimes people are incoherent. The reason why I don't think that works, I don't think this is a way that positivists can get out of the problem of theoretical disagreements, is that this is not like a small disagreement. Like, this is not like one of those tiny, you know, things that people can be confused by. I mean, for positivists, this is the fundamental feature of law, which is that what law is, is determined by consensus among legal actors. I don't know how you can, like, say that a social practice is a certain way, and yet the fundamental way in which the practice works Everyone's, everyone who's engaged in the practice is mistaken about. That is, there's radical error about the most important thing about the practice. That seems to me to be um, a violation of uh, any norm of charitable interpretation. So I don't think the incoherence uh, response is going to work. And you can make the insincerity argument. You can say, look, when when actors are disagreeing among themselves, they are um, doing what legal actors do. That is, they're, they're arguing their position. And we know that legal actors often um, say things that they don't um, believe in. Um, either they're arguing for their client or they're arguing for their political position. So well, it's, not, it's not really um, that surprising that legal actors might say things that they don't believe in that involve uh, conceptual mistakes because they're, they're just, they're being legal actors, they're being lawyers, they're just trying to get um, their own, um, uh, they're trying to win. They're trying to win either for the, for the snail darter or for the Tennessee Valley Authority or they're trying to win um, for the pro-choice side or the pro-life side or whatever. Now, I, the reason why I don't think that's going to work either is that, of course, we all know that uh, legal actors are insincere and that they often argue about interpretive methodology and about the grounds of law because they want their own their own side to win. I mean, that's not that's that we all know that that happens. I don't think, though, that anybody, th we, we think that just simply by virtue of the fact that they're engaged in theoretical disagreements. That is, let's say if you, let's just take originalism for, for, for the moment. So the people who argue for originalism, who think that the Constitution is best interpreted or properly interpreted according to the original public meaning of the Constitution, that they think the original public meaning is the ground is ground of law for constitutional law? Um, you might think that they're being insincere because they're they 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 want um, to read the constitution very narrowly and give uh, certain people less rights than those people are claiming for themselves. Um, you might you might you might think that, but I don't think anybody thinks that originalism is 
the originalists are being insincere precisely by arguing about the grounds of law. As nobody thinks, oh, you're making a controversial claim, therefore, by virtue of the fact that you're making a controversial claim, therefore, you're being insincere. No, I think people think is that it's not the, th- the disagreement itself that, that, that uh, makes us think that they're being insincere. It's the fact that the position that they're arguing leads to consequences that they want. Okay, so I, I guess I, I just don't buy this idea that the positivists can get out by saying that legal actors are being insincere by having theoretical disagreements, because I don't think it's the fact of having the theoretical disagreement is what we think is insincere. I think we think what's insincere is the fact that they're arguing for a specific position. Okay, anyway, what having whether you accept it, whether you don't accept it, um, um, I personally accept it. I think that... Um, positivists ought to take the problem of theoretical disagreements very seriously. I have in my own work. uh, Dworkin's um, uh, arguments in Law's Empire and beyond uh, really depend on the fact that theoretical disagreements are um, a feature of legal practice or very common. And he wants to give an explanation for how theoretical disagreements are possible. And of course, what he's going to do is he's going to argue ultimately that um, the legal facts ultimately depend not on social facts, on consensus, but rather on moral facts. And so when people are engaging in these legal disagreements, they're really engaging in moral disagreements. Let me um, motivate the argument that Dworkin's going to make by using what I call his literary analogy. And the literary analogy goes as follows. What Dworkin points out is that uh, theoretical disagreements are not unique to law. You see it in other areas of life. He takes the um, uh, case of literary interpretation. So there are different schools of literary criticism. Some are... Um, formalists, some are Marxists, some are new, um, new criticism, some are um, uh, modernists. Basically, there are lots of different theories of literary criticism, different theories about what do you look to, what are the grounds of literary interpretation, um, like, for example, do you look at the intention of the author or do you look at formal features of the text or do you look at the emancipatory potential of the text? Um, these are disagreements about how to interpret legal texts, what facts count. And when literary critics are having disagreements about like what the right way to interpret Hamlet is. And if someone says, no, the right way to do it is psychoanalytic. And the other one's saying, no, 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 it's, this is what Shakespeare thought he was doing. So therefore this is the right way to interpret um, Hamlet. These are theoretical disagreements and it's wrong to think that they're empirical disagreements as everyone can, can agree about what Shakespeare himself thought he was doing when he wrote Hamlet but they'll, they could still disagree about what Hamlet means. 
Now, how do we explain this disagreement among literary criticism? And this is what Dworkin calls constructive interpretation. What literary critics are doing is, at bottom, they're having a disagreement about what makes literature valuable and what kind of methodology would make literature the most valuable thing it could be, given that it's literature. So just to use the a quote, uh, but this is what constructive interpretation is. Constructive interpretation is imposing on a, this is the quote, imposing purpose on an object or practice in order to make it the best possible example of the form or genre to which it is taken to belong. Okay, so when literary critics are disagreeing about the right way to interpret literary texts, what they're doing is they're imposing their view about what the value of literature is and how to make the text in question the best example of the thing that it is, namely a literary text. In the case of law, constructive interpretation would be imposing on law, on legal practice, a value which would make that practice the best that it could be, given the fact that it's a legal practice. The idea here is that there are different genres of interpretive objects, you know, there's, there are songs, there are plays, there are novels, there, there's law, um, there are lots of different things, and they each have their own, if you will, standards of excellence, standards of value. And constructive interpretation is, what, is the interpreter trying to figure out what makes that thing the best, what makes that thing valuable, and how do we interpret it so that it becomes the best thing it could be given that it is that kind of thing? Okay, so the example that he gives him kind of uh, in the case of literature is that um, you might think that modernism, by privileging the intention of the authors, do so because they think of art as being the expression of genius. And so therefore, we want to interpret the text in accordance with the intent of the author because that would make the work an expression of genius. Now, it doesn't matter whether this is the right interpretation of modernism. The point is just as an example. It's trying to say, what makes literature great and based on what makes literature great, we're going to pick a methodology which shows that literature is great. So if you thought literature is great because it has the potential to um, uh, emancipate human beings from their own um, uh, particular historical situation, um, it would be a mistake to look only at the intentions of the author because that intentions of the author doesn't really contribute to the emancipatory potential of the text. We'd want to look at the emancipatory potential of the text. Um, and so you could see why theoretical disagreements 
in literature would be very common if you thought of literary interpretation as being a species of constructive interpretation, because what they're, what literary critics are doing is they're disagreeing about what makes literature great, what makes it valuable, and how to interpret liter- literary text in such a way that would exemplify and further that value and its purpose. In the case of law, what Dworkin is going to say is that theoretical disagreements are instances also of constructive interpretation. And what legal actors are doing when they're making their arguments for the grounds of law is that they are imposing on law their moral theory about what makes law great, makes law morally valuable, and that the grounds of law that they think are valid are the ones that f- that make law morally the best that it can be. Now, how do you make law th- the best that it can be? Well, this is where you get this business, which I'm sure a lot, uh, some of you have heard about the relationship between fit and justification. Um, what makes legal practice the best that it can be, understood as an instance of constructive interpretation is that interpretation which best fits and justifies legal practice. Now, what is fit and justification? The best way, I think, to get at it is to um, talk again about literature. Um, Dworkin gives this example, which I think is really helpful. I think he gives it in, a, in, a, in an article, not in Law's Empire, but in... Um, one of the articles in um, a matter of uh, a matter of principle, um, where he says, "Well, if you're trying to make literary text best that it can be, why don't you interpret uh, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express as being Hamlet? I mean, after all, Hamlet's a great play. Murder on the Orient Express is, you know, it's an okay mystery novel, but you know, if it were Hamlet." It would be even better because Hamlet's one of the greatest plays in the history of the world. Um, so if you're trying to make the murder on the Orient Express the best that it can be, interpret it as Hamlet. And Dworkin says, no, no, you wouldn't be making murder on the Orient Express the best that it can be if you were interpreting it as Hamlet because there's nothing in the murder on the Orient Express that seems to be anything about an indecisive Dane who has to decide whether to take revenge on his father. That is, if you read Murder on the Orient Express, none of the text seems to be about the thing that Hamlet's about. The interpreting the Murder on the Orient Express as Hamlet doesn't fit Hamlet because there's nothing in Murder on the Orient Express, that's about a guy named Hamlet, who's a prince in Denmark. Now, what that means is that if you're trying to make something the best that it can be, what you want to do is you want to make sure that your interpretation fits the object, 
and that the interpretation is justified. So let me go over what fit and justification is and how it combines to um, make an object the best that it can be. And then we're going to stop and I'll pick up how this applies in law next week. Okay, so how does it work? What is fit? An interpretation fits an object to the extent to which it approves of the object's existence or its properties. So in the case of a social practice, one purpose fits better than another when the former purpose recommends behavior that more closely matches observed, con observed conduct than the latter. Okay, so let's say you're trying to constructively interpret a social practice. You want to come up with a purpose which best fits and justifies that social practice. You could have purpose one and purpose two. How do you know which purpose to f uh, pick? Well, purpose one better fits than purpose two to the extent to which purpose one recommends behavior that we actually see in practice. So let's, um, let's take Christmas, okay? You say, like, what's the best interpretation of Christmas? Well, we have two, we have two um, uh, possible interpretations of Christmas. One is rank commercialism. The second purpose is um, goodwill and peace on earth. Now, rank commercialism fits better than goodwill and peace on earth because it seems as if the practice of Christmas is more in line with rank commercialism than it is about peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Now, it's not peace on earth, goodwill, and towards men also fits the way in which we celebrate Christmas. Um, but, you know, it seems as if rank commercialism fits better than, um, than the more lofty goal of goodwill and, um, and peace on earth. So that's fit. So it seems as if, like, when you talk about the level of fit, rank commercialism wins. But you also need justification. You also have to compare which of the purposes is more morally justified. And it seems as if, you know, goodwill and peace on earth is more morally justified than rank commercialism. So it seems as if we have a balance here. Rank commercialism fits better with the practice of Christmas, but goodwill and peace on earth is more justified. So what we have to do is we have to, um, we have to balance the two, okay? Now, one might say that um, the best interpretation of Christmas is goodwill and peace on earth, because even though goodwill and peace on earth doesn't fit as well as rank commercialism, it is so much more justified than rank commercialism that when we combine the two, Christmas comes out the better when we see it as goodwill and peace on earth. So that's the way in which we're supposed to 
kind of um, engage in constructive interpretation. We try to figure out which purposes fit, that is, which ones recommend behavior that actually exists, and then which purposes are, are best justified. And then we try to pick the purpose which has the best mixture of fit and justification. Now, what Dworkin's going to do is he's going to say that the disagreements that we find about the grounds of law in uh, legal systems um, are really disagreements about what moral purposes best fit and justify legal practice. And he's going to go through, he's going to make detailed arguments, and he's going to come out with a certain view about what the grounds of law are in a particular legal system. He'll call that laws integrity, and we're going to talk about that uh, next week. Um, uh, we'll do a we'll do a um, a, a, a rehash um, of what we talked about, and then I'll go through uh, Dworkin's arguments, and we'll evaluate them. Um, and let me uh, let me um, take us out uh, with a little bit more of uh, Rolling Stones. Peace to Birdie. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>